Welcome back to Thimbleberry U. I am John Jagge. I'm joined by Amy Walls, as always, from Thimbleberry Financial. Amy, great to be back with you. Jag, it's fun to be talking to you again today. So we're talking about five issues that can make or break your IPO dreams. I'd imagine that you work for a company, you hear there's going to be an IPO, you get super excited, you have really high hopes, but there are a lot of factors that can come into play that can really change the landscape in this kind of situation, right? Yes, there definitely are. And it's not always that it changes the landscape. It's about sometimes just understanding some of the general things you may hear Mm -hmm. about markets and distributions and how they work and actually understanding how to apply them. Because you might think that the IPO is going to be the cat's meow, right, for, (laughs) for your financial future. But that may be because you are misunderstanding, unfortunately, a few bits of information. So let me rephrase that then, because it's not about changing the landscape. It's about changing maybe and managing your expectations and having a better understanding. Absolutely. This is always about education. Okay. So before we break them down individually, what are the five items that might derail somebody's ideas of what an IPO is going to mean? Yes. The first I'm going to say is understanding the taxes on stock and equity compensation. It's a topic we've talked about in many different podcasts. Uh, The second is the taxes on investments and long-term investing. The third is the 4% rule. Fourth is sequence of return risk. And the fifth is one of our other favorite topics, biases. Always comes into play, as we've talked about before. And you mentioned that we've also talked about the first item on that list, which is taxes on stock and equity compensation. It can be confusing. So see if you can break it down for us and the listeners. Yes. Well, considering we have podcasts on this topic, I'm going to talk about this very briefly. Um, For more details, somebody should probably listen to those other ones. But first thing is RSUs, restricted stock units. Mm Mm-hmm. These are taxed as ordinary income when they vest. So vesting has to happen for someone to realize the money from them. The stock doesn't belong to the employee until vesting happens. One thing that you have to watch out for is what's called double vesting. When your company isn't public, you may have a double vesting rule, which means that, for example, if I have RSUs, they may vest here on the 15th of this month but the company may not go public for two more months and that will be the second vesting date. That's the double vest date. Ah, okay. Let's say that my RSUs vest quarterly. So if they vest, let's say April 15th and again, July 15th, and the IPO happens in June, then the IPO is the first vesting and my July vest date would be the second vesting for that set of shares. Okay, got it. So you don't necessarily get them all on the IPO date. And when RSUs vest at that second date and they actually become yours, they're taxed as ordinary income, same as the money you earn on your paycheck. Good to know. So ISOs, incentive stock options, are another form. These can be really beneficial because they have a possible preferential tax treatment, Mm -hmm. but they have to be handled correctly. I won't go into the details here because this is really complicated. But it's important to know that you have to be cautious and treat those in the right way to get that preferential tax treatment. Got it. Okay. So RSUs, ISOs, and what else? NSOs, non-qualified stock options. So 
These are not as common with an IPO. Typically where I see them is someone had incentive stock option shares and they maybe were given the option by the employer to trade these for NSOs, maybe to get a longer vesting schedule if there was fear the IPO wouldn't happen before the ISOs expired because mm-hmm. these do have a time frame on them. So with a non-qualified stock option, you have to exercise the stock option, which means you have to buy the right to buy it at a different price. So for example, if the stock price is $48 when you do this, but you have the right to buy the shares at a dollar, you're going to have a $47 gain that is taxable as ordinary income. Ah, okay. And, and that happens when you exercise. Got it. So important to know all of those rules. Yes. Okay, so the second thing you mentioned was taxes on investments for the long term, Amy. What can you tell us about why taxes on those investment accounts can be a surprise? This is something that I have found surprises many people who receive a windfall. And with this, I'm really talking about taxable accounts. So this is not money inside a retirement account. Um, We talked about this in the very first podcast on tax diversification. This is the corner of the triangle where the umbrella that protects from taxes is blown away. (laughs) So these dollars are constantly being hit with taxes. And when we're talking about large amounts of money, and especially with an IPO that that money is coming from a single stock, it's smart to diversify, right? We hear that all the time. It depends on someone's situation if they're diversifying everything or a portion, but it definitely can be smart to diversify. And let me touch on that in diversifying, I'm not talking about building a portfolio of tech stocks. Right. (laughs) Right, as an alternative to this one stock. There's a couple reasons that, that you can get surprised with taxes. First of all, index funds or mutual funds must pass the net capital gains to investors. So for example, let's say that you have a mutual fund and inside of that, that owns many different stocks. Okay. And they're buying and selling. Well, when their losses for the year are balanced with their gains, they have to transfer the gains that resulted during the year over to investors. This usually happens in December. Mm-hmm. Well, that can be a surprise. And the taxes that come from those net capital gains aren't paid out of the investment and out of the gains. They actually have to be paid out of cash flow. Ah. So that becomes an issue, especially when it happens maybe mid-December and people aren't expecting it. So not only are the capital gains potentially an issue, turnover is an issue. Mm -hmm. Because... If there's a lot of redemptions happening in that portfolio, which really means that investors are saying, hey, I want my money. So an example of this would have been March of 2020. Sure. When everyone was fearful of what COVID was going to mean. Those money managers may need to sell. And as a result of selling, they may realize gains that now need to be passed back to the investors. So the investor can be on the hook for a gain that they may not have realized was happening immediately. Absolutely. And it is not unusual for about 2% of an account value to be taxed in some way at the end of the year on an account like this. Okay. Okay. So what I mean by that is if you have $5 million at 2%, that's $100,000 that might be your tax bill that you need to pay out of cash flow. 
That is a lot. Yep. Okay, third item on the list, Amy, the 4% rule. What is it? The 4% rule is a rule of thumb, meaning it's a ballpark. It's not accurate. There's plenty of data that show this doesn't work, and there's plenty of data that shows that it does work at times. Okay. But when you have both, we have to say it doesn't work. <laughs> the idea here is that you can draw 4% off of a portfolio indefinitely and continue to have that same purchasing power going forward. Okay. So let's use some numbers here to make this real. If you have a million dollars invested, if you were to draw 4%, that means you could have income of $40,000. Right. Okay. I'm with you. Okay. But here's the trick. The following year to have the same purchasing power, you need approximately $1,030,000 in the investments if inflation was 3%. Ah, you got to keep up with inflation. Okay. To have $41,200 in income, which would then be the equivalent of $40,000 today. Right. $40,000, 3% inflation becomes forty-one two. Got it. Okay. Yes. So the issue that I hear with this 4% rule is that people look at it and say, great, if I've got a million dollars, I have $40,000 that I can spend. Or if I have 5 million in our example earlier, I have $200,000 I can spend. Yep. But the 4% distribution goes to all of your expenses. So right now, if we're talking about that taxable account where the umbrella blew away, you still have to cover the tax bill. Oh. Right? Because I'm imagining you don't have the cash flow sitting around to cover, in our example of $5 million, at $100,000 tax bill that might be there. Yeah. Not exactly in the couch questions. Yep. With, with the right strategies, we can bring that tax bill down. But somebody should know that that could be the case. And so that really only leaves maybe $100,000 of actual spending money. And depending on what your dreams are, that can be a big surprise. To boil that down, that idea of taking 4% of what you've got, that doesn't include the taxes. So once you're taking taxes out, that 4% might be 3% or 2% or something less than 4%. It's not the money that you thought you were getting when you uh, took that 4% out. Yes. And it's even less if we're talking about money in an IRA because then you're taxed at an ordinary income tax rate. Got it. All right. Fourth item on your list, Amy, sequence of return risk. Can you walk us through that, please? Yes. Sequence of return risk is the idea that when you're drawing off of your accounts, meaning using money out of them, the order of your returns, the rate of returns, your account growing or going down matters in determining how much money you will have ultimately. Okay. So if you're using the IPO to achieve retirement or financial independence, the order of your returns will matter because in that scenario, you are going to be drawing down on your accounts. If you're accumulating money, the order of returns doesn't matter. Hmm. So you could have negative returns up front in one scenario with positive at the end, positive returns in another scenario with negative at the end. And if you're accumulating, it doesn't matter what the order is. Okay. But that does matter when you're taking money out. If you have negative returns in the early years, you will ultimately have less money and it's all due to compounding. Okay. Compounding interest and when what's in the account. Got it. Okay. Mm-hmm. So one of the misunderstandings we've heard is around this and not understanding how that works. So what someone might think is that, well, let's say their portfolio did 20% in this year. 
can they take the growth that's over their average expected rate? Let's say that's 8%. So now they've got 12% more than what their average was. Mm -hmm. Can they take that and spend that? It doesn't seem like a good idea. Well, it's filling in for the years where you got less than your 8% rate of return. Okay. That's what helps make that average. And let's say there are times you get a few years that are better than average. You might see that your spending can go up or you want to pull some out for a one-time expense. There can be a couple of problems with that. The first is that with an IPO, what we see is sometimes people retiring at a young age, maybe 35, 40, 45. They have a lot of life ahead of them. Yeah. And that means a lot of market changes and a lot of life changes. So we want those big years to happen early because it means more money ultimately and a better chance of success. Extra money at the beginning is going to sit there and the interest is going to compound. Got it. Okay. Absolutely. So the first problem is that overspending in the early years of financial independence or retirement will be amplified because that compounding doesn't happen. Right. That money's not there to compound. Got it. Okay. Absolutely. And the second reason is that if you increase your lifestyle, you're setting a higher annual spending rate for the long term, which just means every year you're going to draw down on your accounts further. Right. You, you set that money early of, hey, I'm going to live this particular lifestyle. It's a lot harder to go back than if you just never started in the first place. Absolutely. All right. Fifth and final on your list, biases. And we've talked about biases in previous podcasts, and they can really affect your outlook on things. In the context of what we're talking about here, Amy, what can you tell us about biases? Yeah, we did touch on a number of biases that impact investing in that podcast that we did previously. And some of those definitely apply here. Though I think familiarity is the main bias that's going to apply here. There is a belief that when you work for a company, you know the ins and outs of what's happening. And therefore, you're better able to predict what the stock price is ultimately going to do. And the reality is most people don't know the inner workings of their company that well. Right. This bias is actually more of an emotional attachment also Mm -hmm. that we need to pay attention to. So the way to get around this is for people to recognize that they do have a bias. And once you can recognize that, you can create a strategy for how to handle the stock or options that make sense outside of what that bias is. You need to look at it more objectively instead of saying, hey, I work for this company. I believe in this company. Everything looks good. But like you said, you may not know what's going on. You may have an unusually favorable opinion of the company just from only seeing it from the inside. You've got it. So a lot of things to think about. Uh, A lot of people have some ideas in their head of what an IPO might mean if that's the route that their company is going. But as we've discussed today, Amy, there's a lot of things to consider that you might not see at first blush. So if somebody wants to come talk to you, if their company is having an IPO coming up, or if they want to talk about their financial future in general, what are the best ways to find you at Thimbleberry? Uh, They can find us on the web at thimbleberryfinancial.com or by giving us a call at 503-610-6510. Great stuff. As always, Amy, we'll talk again soon. Yes, sounds good. Registered representative, securities offered through Cambridge Investment Research, Inc., a broker-dealer, member FINRA, SIPC. Investment advisor representative, Cambridge Investment Research Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Cambridge and Thimbleberry Financial are not affiliated.